Welcome back to Beyond Sect, it is your bi-monthly podcast all about the beyond world of author duo Kit Roca. My name is Chelsea. And I'm Anna. And I guess we are what? We are, we're not beyond the sectors anymore. We're the, we're the writers. We're, we're riding the sectors. That sounds bad. <laughs> that doesn't sound like the right thing. Well, we moved into a new sector. Yeah, we, we are, we are beyond sector, sector four now. There four. we go. So uh, if you guys are just now uh, kind of catching up with us, uh, we are officially starting with the Gideon's Rider books, which means we are here today to talk about Ashwin. We have left Sector 4 behind, although we will see uh, some familiar faces in this book and in the next couple books, just kind of popping up here and there. Uh, But especially in this book, we met Ashwin and Cora in the last couple of, well, actually, I guess we meet Ashwin fairly early on, book... What is it, book three it- when he comes in and saves Ace's life? Or book four, I guess, is, is the the Rachel Ace and Cruz book. Yeah, but I think that happened in the previous book. Um, oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, so we've kind of known Ashwin, at least on the periphery, for a while. Um, yeah, so we are over in sector one. This is the uh, religious sector. This is the Rios family. Uh, we've met them a little bit. We've seen Gideon, obviously, in operation. And we've met a couple members of the family through mad but this is our first kind of big uh, introduction so i guess do we want to start with kind of like a plot synopsis yeah just a little bit i mean uh we follow ashwin uh in cora in this book and so it opens with ashwin coming into sector one uh he is there to infiltrate the sector um but that brings him uh right into the circle of, that he's been trying to avoid, where Cora has been hiding. And when we open, uh, Ashwin does not know that Cora has been hiding out in Sector 1, or he's just recently learned. And of course, Cora does not know that Ashwin is still alive. So when they kind of both uh, see each other for the first time, it is big deal. Big, big yes. deal. <laughs> serious fireworks. Serious um, fireworks. Serious uh, some bit of anger a little bit of some some issues and emotions coming up with you know very good reason <laughs> yeah so this is a, a few months after the, the events in the previous beyond series the wall in eden has fallen and there's all these refugees and people who have been displaced who sector one has sort of taken under the wing they have a big missionary purpose of blessing the world so they go out And they are becoming a power in the post-Eden world, right? And so they've made the people at the base a little nervous. And so while, you know, the person who always threatened the base in Eden used to be Dallas. And Dallas is still a power in this world. It is not the same when it's a theocracy with highly um, motivated followers. Yes, this is, I think the thing that kind of stands out most starkly to me this time, especially having like just read all of the O'Kane books, is just how starkly different Brie and Donna are able to make Sector One while still operating within like the framework of this universe that we've already like established. Because obviously we've seen Sector One through glimpses of the O'Kanes. But once we're actually in it, it still feels like such a different 
culture, even though like found family and so much of those kinds of thematic touchstones are the same. The entire like organization around it is so different. Right. They're all people who've been touched by the same event. You know, they've the the flares and the, everything that destabilized the world happen in sector one as much as sector four, but people took completely different tacks and responding to it. And um, so, yeah, it's the same world, very much operating the same world, but it's its own little sort of universe of how these people came together and the culture they've brought and how power is measured is very different. The importance of family and hierarchy is very different. And it's very interesting to me, especially because like there is just as much found family as with the O'Kanes inside like the writers, but it's also juxtaposed with a much more elaborate like biological family structure because the Rios family and the ruling family are genetic family they are they are biological family they are cousins or i mean there are intermarriages but they they descend from a similar like genetic family tree much more than we saw in like okay the okane territory right but it's also complicated in the sense that maricela is an adopted daughter of uh uh the Gideon's sister, you know, she's adopted in very much st- and the same Cora has become adopted into the Rios family, a way that she actually doesn't really begin to appreciate till Ashwin comes in, how real her adoption is, uh, that it isn't just a formality or a uh, thing people say, but Gideon considers her a sister. Uh so yeah, so I mean, there's, again, complicated families, complicated relationships and power dynamics. Just like in the first book, we had all the tension around Noelle and her father's relationship. We start unpacking a lot more of the, the tensions that Gideon has with his uh, grandfather, who was uh, the prophet, in the same way that we have seen Mad have to deal with. Gideon's stuff is always really fascinating and it continues to be kind of more fascinating as we get to know him and see more of his kind of juxtaposition with his grandfather, the prophet, and the the kind of person he's being, but also his struggle against the institutions that have already been established. We talked a little bit about that in the course of the Beyond books in terms of some of the changes that Gideon has tried to make and the way those did or did not go over super great with the population of one in general. Um, but it's really interesting because, like you said, when we were kind of doing our plot synopsis, Ashwin shows up and he's got his orders to infiltrate the writers, which we learn fairly early on is something that Gideon also knows mm-hmm. and is something that Gideon then also tells Deacon. And so there are multiple kind of layers of this chess game, essentially all kind of being played at the same time. Right. So in the book, we really have Ashwin coming in with this ulterior motive and he has ulterior motives to his ulterior motives because then base might have sent him but he is a writer and accepts that into because it puts him where he could be closest to Cora um and he has this all this conflicted feelings over that right because he is convinced he's a danger to her because that's everything that the base has told them that if he becomes unstable and fixated he will harm her in fact and Cruz restates that to him in the end of the Beyond books where he takes and hides Cora for him. Um, so you have a person who's convinced that he's a danger, 
but also convinced that he's the only one who can keep her safe. Uh, and so he has to come into the be part of the writers so he can keep her safe from the base. So like he's like subverting and serving the base at the same time, which I love about Ashwin. He's so complex. Yeah, and I love it because Ashwin's whole like bottom line is Cora. And so he states several times that like if the base's goals or if the writer's goals or whoever overline with that mission, then like he is very much so like lawful neutral, only his lawful is protecting Cora Bellamy. So whatever else may or may not come in between that, which is complicated, of course, because, you know, as we learn more about her and especially her, you know, Project Panacea and all of that that's going on, her kind of relationship to him and what she's able to do for him takes on like a different kind of uh, meaning mm -hmm. or cast or mm -hmm. importance. And so it really adds like an additional layer. And then, of course, this is the first time, you know, her being in Sector One, her kind of being out on her own. This is the first time she's really gotten to make some choices for herself. And so here we have another heroine who for the first time is presented with the chance to make some choices. And that factors into what she feels are kind of her ultimate allegiances. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was really interesting how Brie and Donna take two outsiders to bring us into Sector One. Um, as we read, you know, um, just like we followed Noel into Sector Four where everything was new and confusing, we're following Ashwin trying to make sense of like the religious and moralistic connections that happen in sector one, where he's been raised without emotion, without like a very strict, rigid sense of belief in, in trusting the base, but at the same time being betrayed by what he is in the base. And then he's here in sector one, where you have these people who have this immense amount of power and are trying to wield it in the most responsible way because there has been so much abuse in the past. And there's then Cora who is, you know, she's not sure she's, she's going to believe in the God that the Gideon's people believe in, but she believes in their mission and in the, like the reality of the work that they do. And then there's so much to unpack for them as they try to figure out who they are in this new world and whether they fit in or not. And I think that that's really important as kind of, like you said, this new entry point for us, because it is a really complicated political and religious political environment that we're entering. And this book does, and I've always really appreciated that this book and all of this Sector One stuff really does give a really interesting way to focus on things like religion and the roles that religion and religious structure plays in something like kind of a post-apocalyptic scenario or a life when things are kind of, you know, taken back to a certain point. And there are some really interesting things because even various members of the religious family struggle with or have issues with what they actually believe of the faith. And that goes back to, you know, those who knew the original prophet and some of the really kind of shitty and shady things that he did while also establishing this religion with, of course, you know, and that's the case with religion, wrestling with all the other good things mm -hmm. and the hope mm -hmm. and the, the, you know, mental and spiritual and community relief that the church, or in this case, the Rios family provides to people. And it's interesting, especially when we hear from characters who are saints, basically, who are sainted ones or who are operating as living religious figures. 
now. Right. <laughs> or people who have to live with the memory of their loved ones being sainted religious figures. Sometimes because, you know, like they have to share them with the world. So we have that happens to Mad, that happens to Gideon, that happens to Maricela, uh, very much where the people they love are people People are wanting, you know, they, they have tattoos they're going to share and they have, um, they see their images everywhere. Um, and how complex that is, that the, the personal relationship when something becomes something bigger and no longer belonging to them. Um, and I think there is that element throughout this book. Who do you belong to? Um, and who are you really? Uh, especially, uh, what people expect you to be, what people have classified you to be versus who you really are. So, I mean, like we have Cora, who's been trained to be a doctor her whole life, who finds out that there's like a even greater reason why she's such a healer. And then we have Ashwin, who's been trained to be this killer um, and unquestioning soldier who questions and who rationalizes mm -hmm. and does all this stuff and how they fit uh, against the identity that's been imposed on them. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's like really interesting for me, especially where Ashwin is concerned, is like this pull and this this thing that Cora keeps coming back to where the the Makai soldiers are so indoctrinated to believe that they don't feel that they almost like predispose themselves to not feeling or to it's not even not feeling to not recognize emotions as emotions because what Cora points out is that what they view as recalibration or the need for recalibration is anything from jealousy to anger to lust to love to like the emotions yeah everything <laughs> so it's not that they don't feel emotions it's just it's a very interesting like you said kind of what we are taught to think of ourselves and our situation mm -hmm. and our lives and then how that can actually then manifest into kind of its own reality. Right. They're not given words for those feelings and they're told those things don't exist. They're just something that they're not supposed to encounter. So they don't have ways to process them or deal with them. So yeah. So attraction becomes obsession because there is no way to learn how to manage that and uh, uh, your response to having some attention becomes fixation. And that, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. and it's all because they've been robbed and told to dismiss all that input that could get in the way of the mission to the side. And then I think it's interesting because we see that same thing pop up when we get to, and this is hopping way to the end of the book, but when we learn about Cora and Project Panacea and her being basically genetically engineered to be the counterpoint to the Makai project whereas they are super soldiers she is of a, a basically a class of a, an experimental class born to be super healers the problem is she her entire group the entire scientific cohort basically all either became addicted to drugs or suffered mental breakdowns or all burned out very early and Ashwin's concern comes from this really interesting place of he doesn't want to tell her for for lots of reasons, but primarily his thought is, has she made it so long in her life without suffering that fate because she doesn't know right. that that is the fate that the other people who have are part of this project suffered? So it's very much like he thinks that because she doesn't know she's supposed to break down, that's part of the reason she's not breaking down. And it is it's there's 
some really interesting, I think, kind of like allegories in there too, like mental health and being super compassionate and and drawing lines around your own mental health and kind of it's just there's like it's a very interesting like a web of things to pick apart yeah I mean I mean there's so much about that uh, whether a diagnosis is a predisposition to something um and uh predestines you to a particular kind of feeling I know I have a friend mm-hmm. whose parents knew she had ADHD and kept it from her uh most of her life Yikes. Yeah, and and it wasn't until she was like a senior in high school that she like recognized herself and all the things that she did uh, in a in a book. And we're like, Mom, I think I have the ADHD. And her mom's like, oh, yeah, we we categorized you a long time ago. But we but they came from the mindset that if they just taught her to be a different way, it would be different. And and for her, she's like, no, oh, my God, I would have. It, I wouldn't have been kicking myself or being stressed at myself for the things I, you know. So there's that element of a diagnosis can also give you like a, a, a like a click of like, oh my God, there I am. Mm-hmm. And I think we see Cora have lots of things that haven't made sense to her, make sense to her when she realizes, oh, I am different. And there's a reason mm-hmm. I'm different. Um, but I also see where Ashwin thought like, this doom that came to all of them, he can maybe help avoid her avoid it if she doesn't know that's where she's going to go. Because he's always been told mm. he's going to go a particular way if he feels a particular and way. That, exactly. <clears throat> and I think it's, yeah, it's, and they, they, what I love in their kind of, are their kind of, you know, it's not even an argument, but their, their final conversation where they kind of really kind of finally communicate with each other. I think it's really important that Ashwin acknowledges that like, they were both right, but they were also both wrong. And like, they were both operating from a really good place. And I think what you said is really important. Yeah, because it's very validating, right? Like, it's very validating. And Cora is upset with Ashwin because he knows she's been wanting answers. And he's seen how much it's hurt her to feel this way and not know why and to legitimately think that she is crazy or that something is wrong with her, that something's going on, not knowing that it's not even that something is wrong with her, but there is something going on. There is a reason. And it's not just for nothing. It is for a specific reason. So again, yeah, I think it's very interesting and it's kind of nice to see that there really is no right answer in that situation, right? Like we will never know predestination because once you know, you know, right? Like you can't, you can't know the alternative. Mm-hmm. And so I just think it's a nice kind of way to walk that line between the two and to a nice kind of like ultimate resolution. Yeah. And I mean, it was a fantastic conflict because you have someone who is trying to protect another person from the knowledge that they're seeking uh, for their mm-hmm. own good and how that brings an element of deceit that they have to really struggle to come over. Um, I mean, she had, it's legitimately a betrayal and mm-hmm. and that's not like a snap your fingers we're over it kind of situation and it's really nice and not refreshing but it's just very different so many of the last okane books have were so big we were dealing with this war we were dealing with this huge event and how it was touching all of these lives of these people that we knew and were coming to know whereas the, the conflict in this book feels much more intimate. Like, obviously, yes, there is still big plot stuff happening in terms of 
getting Ashwin kind of introduced to and officially kind of away from the base and into the writers and setting up the next like several relationships for the series. But the, the essential conflict is very much so just a communication, emotionally centered, intimate conflict between Ashwin and Cora. And then also between Ashwin and Gideon and navigating that aspect of it. And it, so it felt, it was nice. It was kind of nice to take that step back and do something that felt a little bit more like the beginning of the beyond books do where they just feel much kind of more intimate as we get to know this bigger world. And obviously it's Brie and Donna and I know that big, <laughs> big bigger coming. things are coming and <laughs> games will be afoot and it won't be that way for long. But like it felt like kind of going back to those first couple. Right. Of it was it was quiet. Much, more, much smaller. And for the most part of the book, it really happens in sector one for the vast majority of it. Mm-hmm. And within sector one, pretty much almost all in the Gideon uh, compound. Uh, so we're either mm-hmm. in the the barracks or in the cast in the palace, I guess the the mansion. So uh, yeah, I remember reading the book again and sort of realizing, oh man, and you know, like a lot of it's just the tension of like you lied to me and I thought you were dead, bastard, kind of <laughs> feelings on Cora's side, um, and mm-hmm. Ashwin like having to make friends <laughs> and not scare the crap out of people. Which, like, we oh, yeah. love it, right? Like, the, who doesn't love that line of literally, like, like not not even, like, unfeeling mm-hmm. rogue, but in this case, like, literally, like, genetically engineered to not have feelings or to not know mm-hmm. his feelings. So this is, like, the highest level <laughs> of emotionally stunted hero that we could really get. Yeah, so he gets... And to watch him, like, take that down and to watch him literally, like learn to name his feelings both like romantically and sexually with Cora but also just in terms of like camaraderie and having friends because he and this is an interesting conversation or kind of points that he makes several times like there's a bond amongst the Makai soldiers but the Makai soldiers are not necessarily friends or family in the same way that the writers are and so we see some interesting kind of juxtapositions right so we all because we also see him interact with a another makai soldier who's like dude what are you doing running with the the rios family right and basically like you and corrigan really like i i I thought i shot you up full of poison to avoid this and he is really trying he's trying to look out for him in the like the way a makai soldier can um and so they have this like but but at the same time ashwin is ready to like shoot him if he's going to be a threat like he's trying to decide is this actually trying to help me or is he gonna do something that I'm gonna need to kill him for and it's you know it's complicated and he has a hard time figuring that out and I love how he starts you know how he's trying to make sense of sector one and how he categorizes the people in there and the figures that we're gonna get to know all the other writers um how he notices what he notices about them. That's all because it's slightly askew from our typical vision of them. Um, So, you know, like we get to see Anna and Deacon in this book and introduce in this book. And it'll be very interesting to talk about like how different they are in themselves from what he sees of them and thinks of them and how insightful he really is, even though he doesn't realize it. So... Mm -hmm. Because he is this outsider. And so that automatically kind of enables him to see these people in a different way than like, they see themselves or that we've seen them through like, 
mad or mm-hmm. through Gideon or through these other characters. But also he sees them in this kind of specific way because he is Makai and because he's been trained to notice certain things as like a tactical defensive strategy. And so like, like I think it's hilarious and also really touching that Cruz and Cora have that conversation about how the way that Ashwin shows that he cares, right? It's another brick in the wall of Donna mm-hmm. showing like the love and happiness and happily ever after look different for everybody. And so when Ashwin is talking about efficiency, what he's actually saying is, I yeah. care about you <laughs> or this, this situation is giving me a lot of emotions. <laughs> and the only way I know to deal with that is to put it in terms of like military tactics and precision. And so it's very much so this like, because Cruz understands that to a certain extent, right? Like, obviously, Cruz was not Makai, but Cruz was high enough at the base that he very much, he can kind of speak Ashwin, mm-hmm. right? Like, he kind of gets that, and he's able to translate that for Cora and for the reader. Yeah. And it kind of gives another, it's like, you know, when we learn that Wesley saying, as you wish, is actually saying mm-hmm. so much more than mm-hmm. that, right? It's like the the key to the dialogue that really flips the character understanding. And it's such, like, a great, moment the way it was written yeah just, yeah good job Rita. oh and i good mean job, guys. i just love the little snippets that we got to see of rachel and Cruz and ace uh in this uh when they show up at the door um because of course ace insists that he needs to have the best doctor for his babies and the best <laughs> when ace walks in and see ash when it goes that crazy murder <laughs> motherfucker know. oh my god dude i laughed so loud in my office i woke the baby it was so good because <laughs> it's just like a, that's that's ace that's alexander santana mm-hmm, for you mm-hmm. and so yeah so that's such, such a both of them are sold them in that moment and also how cora i feel like we saw so much of how much how ashwin is treated matters to Cora. Then that has been the core of her connection with him. She wants him to be treated well, even when he doesn't want to be treated well. When he's ready to excuse uh, Ace's hostility and Cruz's um, suspicion, it matters to her. Like she's going to walk right out of there if they're not going to be cool with him. Well, because I think for her, that goes back to like, she can see and she wants Ashwin to be able to see that people don't care nearly as much about his history as he cares about his history, right? Like because of the way he was raised on the base, because of the things he's done and the conditioning he's gone through, he very much so sees himself as irredeemable and somebody that people are not going to be able to look at or accept into their like familial groups without always thinking that and so it's very important to Cora that like he he be acknowledged and recognized specifically by people who know Mm -hmm. his history and his backstory and who can look at him and say yes I know but or even though I still and like that is a very important sentiment for Cora because and like it's that moment when he's getting inducted like inducted into the writers and he's getting that first glimpse of a group of people who will do that that things really flip for him and we start to see him actually like opening up as much as a Makai soldier (laughs) is able to like actually do that yeah I mean I think that's I mean that is such an interesting theme to center on for these this whole series as 
so far we've gotten in the books because that seems going to come back up in Deacon. Um, very much of the people in, and I think it shows up again in Ivan, um, very much of people having a feeling of like there's something that has marked them that makes them unworthy of love and having people say, no, dude, you're loved. Uh, <laughs> and stop acting like an asshole and come and hang out with us again. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Like I think where like obviously like found family and the diversity of happily ever after obviously goes for, I feel safe to say like everything <laughs> Brie and Donna do just as like a general touchstone. Uh, whereas I feel like found family and like was more uh, or the diversity of happily ever after was more the okay thing because of the way sector one is set up and because of the way the writers operate as literally the like sin eaters and the moral sponges of the people of sector one that idea of worthiness and deserving love and all of that like despite the things you may have done or like with overriding factors for the singular things you've done yeah it does become very much so like a central theme i just realized like we're uh, like 40 minutes in and haven't actually <laughs> talked about like the plot really so like i guess in like 100 words or less it's basically ashwin infiltrates to protect cora and then it and then infiltrates the base having back? to go back to the yeah, he has base? to infiltrate the base back yeah, to like, protect cora you know <laughs> yeah so it, it, it comes out that basically what happens is Everybody who is on the base, all the elite soldiers have a genetic isotopic marker. They've all been injected with a, a kind of an isotope that makes them glow in this certain technology. It's all very 21st century, very high tech, very cool. But because Ashwin's magic is the drone. last person. Yeah, Ashwin's magic drone. It's it's very, it's very like heat sensory. It's very, very cool. Uh, but because Cora is the last surviving member of Project Panacea, she is like basically dead meat if the base finds out because everybody else from this project was eliminated this is a buried project nobody's right. supposed to know but the base has rejuvenated this technology and ashwin through a fellow makai soldier gets word that the base is maybe on to the fact that cora exists so all of a sudden he's got to return to the base and convince the base that they don't know what they do know <laughs> which is that Cora yeah. is alive and of course there's some really great like tense like high tech down to the wire kind of like I mean there's hacking and bluffing uh, to a, <laughs> a great extent to yeah. the utmost degree and it's very much so like that moment like it's that moment in the end of like the heist movie where the one thing has to like be in the one spot and it all comes together but essentially there's a conversation that happens between Ashwin and his commander on the base where the leader in not quite as many words, but essentially says, you can go back to sector one, be there on a quote unquote mm -hmm. mission long term to infiltrate as long as you <laughs> promise that if Gideon starts to go off the deep end and turn into a dictator like his grandfather, that you will be the person to stop Gideon from doing that to to base, to kill Gideon before he becomes any yeah, kind of Yeah, and that's amazing too because that's something that actually Gideon's completely okay with. Gideon doesn't yeah. want to become his grandfather, doesn't want to abuse the power, is constantly worried about 
him losing that perspective and turning in some way, taking taking for granted the sacrifices of his uh, soldiers and the love of his people. And so he even gives Gideon that out in how he structures the oath uh, because Everybody else is sworn to protect Gideon and he doesn't have to protect Gideon. Um, He has to protect the Rios family. And there's this, this moment where Ashwin realizes, Oh, you know what I know. You know, it was sort of like a, Mm -hmm. in this such a moment of mutual trust of like, basically I am trusting you in my land because I know that you will protect them even from me. And I really, I really am coming to on the second reread, like really love and appreciate Gideon even more for that. He is incredibly hyper aware of his people and his community in a way that almost even seems to go beyond Dallas or is very different than the way that like Dallas as a sector leader is in touch with like his community. Like there's a seat, there's a little bit where, I don't remember if it's in this book or Deacon, but basically there is a conversation about Gideon where people are kind of like, he's not touched by God, but maybe he is, or maybe he's just like observant enough that he's, it's like this Dell almost kind of like mysticism where he's just observant and in tune and aware enough of what he does not, he doesn't want to be and what he doesn't want and what he does want for and in the people around him that like he's able to, without saying it, in those words, tell Ashwin, I see you. I know that if I require you to make this pledge to obey me, you won't. But if I leave out that one line and just ask you to protect the family, then we have entered a contract that you can... So like, he knows how to communicate on Ashwin's terms to still get what he wants, which like sounds manipulative, but in order to be manipulative, you have to be like hyper right. aware he, of like your people yeah, he's and your like situation, emphatic right? And intuitive, and whether it's a history of, of manipulative psychology in the family, he he knows just how to give him the right out. Um, and I think that's where I think that uh, Brian Don are doing something really interesting uh, with um, Gideon because. In some ways, he reminds me a lot of Lex, uh, because Lex also has all sorts of ways to manipulate people. That she's been trained to read people and to, to push them in particular directions. And so, likewise, I think when Gideon has to deal with his stuff eventually, please write that book someday. Um, <laughs> listen, listen. I know if they don't, it's fine. But I'm picking up on such major side changeling hawk vibes from Gideon that I know <laughs> eventually I do think there is something really interesting going on with Gideon. And I am so deeply fascinated by his like constant awareness and having to juggle this like his current power position because like it's not just power like it's not like he's Mm -hmm. like a politician Mm -hmm. and he just has power it's wrapped up in so many other people's like faith Mm -hmm. structures but he's also in charge of like the writers in a way that is very specific and interesting and like he's so aware of not becoming his grandfather and it's so influential on the choices he makes and stuff that it's just, yeah, I find him really fascinating as a character. In each book, I'm always so, like, interested to see the extra pieces of him that get 
added to kind of like the overall picture. Okay. Uh, my husband's a pastor um, and I was a pastor's wife. And having been in that side of things for ministry and knowing sometimes how people can become um, plastic or bitter or uh, see the worst when you're in the backside of things, um, I really respect the place that they're in what they're doing with Gideon of somebody who maybe doesn't quite even, he doesn't, he does he has a faith, but it's not the same faith that his people have. Well, cause his people have faith like in him and he doesn't think he's a religious faith. Like he, he doesn't think he's yeah. the son of a God. Like he doesn't actually think he is a God, you know, or deity or whatever. But he like, believes in their beliefs. He, yeah. He, he has a, yeah. He believes in the power of, belief and he very much so respects and takes seriously his stewardship of other people's belief in him and that's what I like really respect about him is like you're saying even as he struggles with what Mm -hmm. he believes he's so respectful of the importance of faith to all of these other people so I that's one of the things that when I first came into the series I was like okay let's let's see where this goes and I've really been fascinated in every book the, with the portrayal of people's faith and at the same time the way that they're able to develop the power structure uh the complicated power structure the grasping power structure of uh of uh this world especially as we you know find out you know we have people who isabella's already starting to like maricela you really need to pick somebody and <laughs> Because well, yeah, because there's very much so still that like almost like royalty, mm-hmm. like royal family aspect. I always think what's really interesting is like there's that there's the that almost kind of underlying constant discussion of like religion and mm-hmm. money, right? Because like the 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 Rios family is so incredibly wealthy because they're able to turn or use the piety and the the contributions and the tithings of the community and it's amassed in this wealth and like they use it very liberally to help those who need help but there's still such an amassing of things and that gets into this really interesting interplay between like stuff and technology and old world and new world and like well and like ashwin breaks it down like when he's walking around gideon's mansion and noticing the candles and how and he knows it's a place that's off the grid and that they have renewable resources. But so the candles are a statement because these are actually expensive to have. Uh, just like the simplicity of the clothing that Gideon wears and the white dresses that his sisters can wear and how that is a luxury. It looks simple and hand spun, but it's all artificial in that same sense because it's it it. It is maintained by wealth and uh, the fact that they have servants. So it's like there's that those double messages that he's constantly like trying to decipher, um, which makes this place a very interesting place. Right. Because that's what's so fascinating. Because then there's also that flip side of where Gideon's coming from of like the tallow for the candles is tithed by a family. So if they don't use the candles, it says something about the family that contributed the tallow to make like so it is this really fascinating like interconnected loop of like Gideon doesn't want to be wealthy like I, again I should I read Ashwin and Dequan like back to back guys just coming up like 
that they comment that like Gideon doesn't necessarily want to be wealthy, right? Like he doesn't want to be this royal kind of figure. Like there's something about him that very much so wants to be kind of mm-hmm. rough and, and rumble kind of more like the writers are, but he can't be because he has to serve this figureheaded leadership position. And part of that is accepting the gifts and the sacrifices and contributions from his community so yeah it's this like you said these these mixed messages that the characters are aware of like within the text and are also Mm -hmm. wrestling Mm -hmm. with so we get our happy ending uh we have we have cora and ashwin against all odds find a way to be together um and then have the complication of she is the sister and he's a writer now. How, how is that going to work? And it's just basically everybody's like, no, it's, it works. <laughs> it's cool. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's really great because, the, you know, it's we know that because Gideon is so on the lookout for becoming his grandfather, we know that what Ashwin's commander has told him is essentially mm-hmm. kind of a get out of jail free pass. That like, from what we know and can see of the books, like this is his pass for why he's now going to like be in sector one and along the same lines we learn that dylan and five has some med tech that allows the the faint trace of isotopes in cora's blood to be removed and also in cruz's blood because cruz was also marked as an elite soldier so like now both of them are no longer on the surveillance Mm -hmm. map right like if the drones that the base has come swooping through again they won't be picked up so we've relieved literally like the external mm-hmm. pressures. So then, you know, Ashwin and Cora sit down. They're able to kind of like have that talk that we talked about where they can both kind of come to the agreement that like they were both right, but they were both wrong. And they both just kind of need to start over basically. And this is their chance to do that. And so we get to see, <laughs> we get to finally see the cabin. We get to see the bug out, you know, Ashwin's like secret hideout. And what I love so much is that throughout the whole novel, Cora tells him so many times that like she would have so willingly gone with him to this place if he had just Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. asked, if he hadn't tried to like take her or kidnap her. Or again, here's the thing, the O'Kane thing, the dudes in Kit Roka's book things of like acting out of her quote Mm -hmm. best interest and really just violating all of her. (laughs) Agency. But if he had just asked her to come away with him, she would have done that. And so to to have her say that mm-hmm. so many times and then finally be in this place where he had wanted to take her is a very, like, yeah. nice way to end with our little, like, mm-hmm. button of a closer. Oh, man. Okay. So we have talked for almost an hour. I think we've probably hit most of it. But any particular, like, favorite lines or f- favorite, favorite scenes or moments? Well, I really love... When Cora gets her tattoo, um, Dal is one of my favorite uh, characters in the series because of her empathy and her sincerity in how she deals with people and how she gives people a physical representation of a mission uh, that validates them and challenges them um, and affirms. And so the way that uh that whole scene breaks down and i mean i just love a lot of the scenes where cora gets to have sisterhood having grown up 
so alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether it's hanging out with the acolytes and spending time with Maricela and gossiping with Nita, um, those are all just to me like cute little moments of that are necessary. They're necessary for Cora. Um, she needs friends just as much as Ashwin did. Yeah, and I really love those moments too. I have two. The first one is like a very specific line. There's right after they've like had sex for the first time, there's a line where um, Cora says something along the lines of like, you know, pillow talk, you can look it up later. Uh, For now, you can just say, no one's ever made you feel like this before. Like it's a line, but it works. And then Ashwin's reply is, I don't need a line. No one's ever made me feel before. (laughs) It's like, which like, Listen, he may not need a line, but that is a good line. Okay, that was a good line. And the other thing I super love that I forgot was in this book is the Demi Moore, Patrick Swayze (laughs) throwing clay pots in the courtyard, like slippery hands, like homage scene. Like, again, I kind of forgot that it was in this book and then it snuck up on me and I was like, oh, is that, are we, okay, okay, we're doing, we're doing a little, we're doing a little ghost scene here. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's lots of cute things that Brian Donna always do, but that particular one, I was just like, it's kind of unnecessary, but also super great. Super great and I'm very glad it's in the book. <laughs> but all right, friends, that wraps up i think our uh conversation on ashwin and our introduction to sector one uh we will be back in a couple of weeks to talk about the next gideon writer's book which is deacon's book um in the meantime do you want to let them know where they can find us anna yeah you can find us at beyondthesectors.com or at beyond sectors on twitter and you can find me on twitter at an outlaw life and i'm anna Koki. All right, friends. Well, uh, until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and we'll see you beyond the sectors. Bye, guys. Bye.